family member they never mention. Everybody that is except Jesus. Let's talk about it with Eric Raymond on Steve Brown, etc. He's an old white guy, an author, broadcaster, and seminary professor who's sick of religion. And he's brought friends. Please welcome Steve Brown, etc. And we're glad you're here. I say it every time, and I mean it every time. You always have a place at our table. In case you're wondering, I'm Steve, the aforementioned old white guy. Matthew Porter is here, and he plans to stay here unless he gets picked to be the new James Bond. Are you (laughs) expecting that? Listen... The probability is slight, but never zero. So, <laughs> Our video director, John Myers, is in his tech bunker. John, if you could fix that last joke with some editing magic, <laughs> that would be a great gift. And thank you. And Dr. George Bingham is the president of Key Life for parents looking for books for their kids. Dr. Bingham recommends Curious George makes a tax-deductible donation to Key Life. And Kathy Wyatt is the soft feminine side of the program. And not to make anybody jealous, but Kathy wants you to know we got down to a brisk 84 degrees here in Central Florida. And she also swam laps this morning which most of you are not able to do, and we have been there, and we have done that, and we have shoveled the snow and chiseled the ice. Okay, enough, enough. (laughs) (laughs) We got a great guest uh, during this program, and you're going to like this. His name is Eric Raymond, and he serves as senior pastor of Redeemer, Fellowship Church in Watertown, Massachusetts, or Watertown, Massachusetts, if you're from there. He is the author of Chasing Contentment, and he's a frequent contributor to many websites and magazines, including blogging at Ordinary Pastor, which is hosted by the Gospel Coalition. Eric's latest book, which I hold In my nicotine-stained hands and fingers is He is Not Ashamed, The Staggering Love of Christ for His People. Hi, Eric. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Is it turning cold there in New England? It's starting to. It was a little brisk this morning. It's about 60 degrees and sunny, though. Very autumnal. It's nice. You know, this is as good as oh, it's no. going to be for a very long time. So <laughs> You're probably right. Enjoy right. it. Yeah. Um, I, loved it. I loved the quote that you used at the beginning of the book from, uh, from John Newton. Yeah. If I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. Second, to meet some I had expected to see, not meet some I expected to see there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself Myself. there. That's pretty much your book, isn't it? Amen, yeah. 
They're going to let me smoke my pipe in the family (laughs) picture. Yeah, I'm not in charge, but, you know, it sounds. (laughs) (laughs) We interviewed Chuck Colson shortly before he died. And uh, Chuck said to me, if I had known you could live as long as you have and (laughs) smoke, I never would have quit. (laughs) <laughs> and when he died, everybody was saying nice things about him. And I did, too. He was my friend. Yeah. But I also reminded people that when he entered the pearly gates, uh, St. Peter gave him a cigar. And, uh, <laughs> and, or it would not have been heaven. Yeah. He told me one time, and I don't want to get off on this too much. He told me one time that if they arrested him for being a Christian and were going to execute him and put a gun to his head and gave him one last request, it would be for a cigarette. So in the family, uh, in the family portrait to which you, and that is a great image. It really is a big one. Right. Going to be a lot of surprising people, right? I I think so. I mean, just, uh, cursory glance to the new testament the gospels uh, we meet all kinds of surprising folks in there so i think if you took them all throughout history quite quite a photo and some who have a story which is your first chapter that's not altogether pretty you're gonna uh, will they be gays there yeah i think about you know think of first corinthians such were some of you right so uh we all come from backgrounds which uh, we need we need Christ for cleansing. So all sorts of sins and sinners. And have been cleansed. Uh, after we come to Christ, we, of course, then are on our own and <laughs> we reach uh, sanctification. Is that right? And if we haven't, we won't be in the family portrait. No, I mean, I, I think we're saved by faith alone and that faith alone continues by God's grace to to save us all the way to the end. So uh, I, don't, I don't see conditional justification when I think about justification. I don't either. Not at all. Yeah. What is that the reason you wrote a book? Because everybody else is conditional? Uh, well, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily anybody else's views necessarily that made me want to write this book. It's more just, um, I, I don't feel like I've been able to get over the reality of the gospel since I became a Christian. It really... It's like I woke up the day after being a Christian and I just couldn't believe it was true. And I've just been dwelling on it now for 25 plus years um, and thinking about it. And just I, I wanted to I wanted to write and think through a lot of these meditations over these years. And I wanted to hopefully primarily encourage our church family. And then if there's a way to encourage others as well, then I'd be happy with that. You know, I uh, read a book, A Short History of the Christian Faith, which was only 200, 250 pages. And I have in my library all of the multi-volume church history books that most pastors have. And I love reading about church history. But in this particular book, and I can't remember who wrote it. He was a professor at Westminster, but he said... Uh, what what struck me uh, up front was all the manure was in one place. 
And uh, you begin to see that the people who were heroes for you in a lot of ways, Martin Luther, for instance, a baptized, born-again Christian, justification by faith alone, wrote some of the most terrible anti-Semitic stuff at the Mm -hmm. end of his life that has ever been written. Mm -hmm. And you begin to look at it and you begin to say that the Bible is kind of like that short history of the Christian church. Mm -hmm. I mean, the painters who paint halos over the heads of the saints don't do us uh, any favor by doing that. Um, is uh, justification by faith alone, does that really mean alone, or do we have to do something? Yeah, I mean, if you, what's the instrumental cause of our justification, right? I mean, what's, what's, what brings it about? Faith, faith is an empty hand that lays a hold of Christ, and Christ and the benefits of the gospel, the benefits and the benefactor are the same. And so we're laying a hold of Jesus. We're not, we're not contributing anything to that equation. And so I do believe it is faith alone. Uh, I do think that the Lord changes our lives and we walk in holiness, but uh, that holiness is never the basis or the instrument for uh, uh, justification, but rather proof of it. Comment on this uh, statement. Uh, the only people who get better are people who know if they don't get better, that Jesus will love them anyway. Hmm. You say comment on that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I think, basically making the point that if you if you actually realize that you're accepted on Christ, I mean, to use the phrase unconditionally, it's he, he, he loves you and he keeps you. I mean, I, I, try, I say in there that uh, Jesus knows who he bought. He didn't keep the receipt, right? I mean, he's, <laughs> he knows what a mess we are. And he saves us and he's, he's, he enters into the mess and keeps us all the way to the end. That's a staggering reality to know that there's somebody that knows you all the way to the core of your being and, and is able to love you to the end and willingly loves you to the end. I, that's just that's tremendously freeing and humbling and refreshing all at the same time. I just can't get over that. I can't either. I yeah. live in it. You know, uh, and we'll talk more about it on the other uh, side of the break, but I'm an old guy and I thought I'd be a lot better by now than I am. Mm-hmm. And I'm still struggling. Yeah. And uh, recognize as your book suggests very par- powerfully that Jesus likes me. He's not ashamed of me. He's never going to say I've had it with you. He's yeah. never going to say I threw I'm through with you. I had such high expectations, and you simply didn't make it. And that's what this book is about. You need to, when you get depressed and you think, I'm not getting very better, I'm not getting better very fast, you ought to sit down with this book and read it. And after you read it, even if you're a Presbyterian, you'll dance and speak in tongues. Guys, we got to take a break because this is hard work and we're going to rest up. Uh, but we're going to come back just like Jesus. So don't go anywhere.
Hi, this is Eric, producer of Steve Brown, etc. If you've been listening very long, you know I'm a struggling believer, and I'd love to share some things that have helped. At Key Life, we believe that the deepest message of the ministry of Jesus and the Bible is the radical grace of God for sinners and sufferers. And we have four mini books that'll help you believe that no matter what you've done or what you're going through, God's not mad at you. Feeling Guilty, Suffering, and Faith and Doubt by Steve Brown will help you apply healing biblical truth to where it hurts the most. And my mini book, The Gift of Addiction, How God Redeems Our Pain, shows that coming to the end of ourselves is actually the beginning of faith. These four mini books are in the Grace for Sinners and Sufferers mini book combo, and it's available at keylife.org for a suggested donation of $12. They're also individually available for a suggested donation of $4. Hey, we're glad you're here. We're talking to Eric Raymond and his latest book, and it's so encouraging. You know, we have Christians who pretend to be just wonderful doing fine, but can't sleep at night because they're blushing all the time. And they think nobody knows, but Jesus knows. And that's not bad news. That's good news. So if you're in that place and you feel that way, you got to get a copy of this book. He is not ashamed, a staggering love of Christ for his people. Eric, uh, you know, you open with that great illustration of the family photo. Um, and a lot of times we're like, yeah, there's some colorful characters, you know, and they're in like, yeah, yeah. And then on to the next point. But you do a really great job. You're like, no, let's not rush past this. Yeah. Let's talk about some of those people and their stories. And I think the word you use is cringeworthy. And that's probably about as good an adjective as, as I could think of, because you do delve into those and you're like, yeah, there's no way around it. That is an uncomfortable yeah. story. I wonder as, as far as like setting the table on this thing, could you just kind of touch on some of those people we meet in that genealogy and in, in, in the opening uh, passages of Matthew? Yes. I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? When Matthew just gives you the genealogy and so often we, maybe you come to that part of your Bible reading and you're thinking, well, today's a quick quick read through a bunch of names. I know the names or the names aren't important. It's just kind of formality. But if you're running your finger over those names and looking at them and saying, well, why, who are these people and why are they in the story? Um, why is Matthew listing in particular, these, these women in the story, which is kind of a, a little bit of a surprise in itself. And then the particular women that he, that he lists in there, um, you know, the majority of these people that are listed, these females that are listed in there have, they have scandalous stories, and then there's some type of a, a sexual uh, connection to it, at least where there would be some shame that would come from it. Um, so if we if we even think back to the situation with uh, Judah and Tamar, um, obviously that that story is a cringeworthy story because um, you know Judah is one who is after both of his sons were judged by God, and they weren't the, the most upright guys themselves. Uh, he promises to take care of Tamar, and of course he doesn't do that. And he basically puts her out of the house and then she um, manipulates the situation and dresses up like a prostitute. And he, after his wife dies, he solicits her and impregnates her. And then we find out later on that the, the, the 
uh, children in her womb actually come from from him. And right. So this this and then that's that's the line in which the Messiah comes um, through this this scandalous situation and a bunch of uh, deceitfulness and um, uh, mistreatment of people. And and so I think one of the things that we see from that, if this is Jesus's family tree, that he not only comes for sinful people, he comes from sinful people. And I think that's one way that Matthew means to make the point. But if we don't get it through uh, Tema and looking at that situation, that from the Lion of Judah coming through that line, uh, you see it with the the story of Ruth. Um, so Ruth, the Moabitess that comes and ends up being the grandmother of David. And if you trace back Ruth, the Moabitess, where the origin of that comes back, you're going back to Genesis 19 and Lot's cave. Of course, we know that scene's right after Sodom and Gomorrah happens and God judges that city and Lot's wife turns into a pillow of salt and there's Lot running away and he's got his daughters with him and they think that there's going to be no um, nobody to have children with, no security, no future, no family um, going forward from them. And so they get their, their father drunk and consecutive nights um, basically make him have sexual relations with them and they become pregnant with them. And one of those children that come from there is the, the father of the Moabite the Moabites. And that's, so that's the family tree by which David comes this incestuous cringeworthy relationship uh, with all kinds of duplicity and lack of trust. And I mean, that's the family tree of Jesus. And this is where the savior of the world, not accidentally, not coincidentally, but providentially comes to say, these are the people, these are the types of people I come from. And these are the type of people I come for people with sinfully stained, embarrassing stories uh, we we can make ourselves blush because of our sin, but I don't think we can make Jesus blush. He hates sin, but he's seen it all, literally, and he saves people from all kinds of backgrounds. So I think that, to me, that brings me tremendous encouragement uh, to, to know that my Savior is not ashamed of me. Wow. Gosh. Mm, um, Eric, the, the verse in the New Testament where Jesus sends the disciples out and he says, go to Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and uttermost parts of the world, et cetera. Um, is there something that we can learn about the uh, the character of God uh, as far in that he in the way he went about sending them out Jerusalem first and, and then et cetera? Yeah, it's definitely not just a simply like a matter of convenience, right? Like it's the most efficient way. This is where we're going um, because they were there. But I think it's God's God's saving plan of how he wants to to work to bring the gospel to those people. And so uh, people forget that just shortly before that commissioning in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus sends out and promises the Spirit and sends it to Jerusalem, uh, that's where Jesus was crucified just, you know, seven or eight weeks prior to that, Christ was crucified largely at the hands of the Jews that rejected him. And so it's as if the crucified now risen and now recently just about to be ascending Lord immediately sends his disciples armed with the gospel to go to those same people and to preach Christ and preach that he would forgive them if they turn from their sins. And so you have Jerusalem and then you have Judea, moving it outward a little bit, and then Samaria, which would have been seen as outcasts, um, all kinds of political and ethnic and religious 
um, squabbling, squabbling that would have happened there. And then we see that the gospel go forward to the uh, Samaritans in chapter 8. And then we see it going to the Gentiles in chapter 10. And then going to the really what becomes the ends of the earth, ends of the earth in um, Ephesus in chapter 19. Um, so you see in each of those cases, it seems as if God punctuates those intentional mission um, um, advancements with the gospel, with these demonstrations of the Holy Spirit and power, as if to say, these are my people. These are part of my family, and I'm bringing them home through Christ. So I think it shows us Christ's heart of love to those who are far away and who have acted in very sinful ways towards him, that his heart beats for those uh, that would come to him. Are there any exceptions uh, in the family photo? Uh, of those who don't have cringe-worthy pasts or stories? Or is this a universal problem that all people deal with? That's a great question. I think uh, probably in one sense it's in, in relative, uh, relative cringe, right? Uh, everybody has some cringe. Hey, Eric, hold that thought right there. Sure. Uh, that will make that into what's called in the industry a teaser. And uh, we'll pursue that subject on the other part, uh, the other side of the break. The book is He Is Not Ashamed, and He Really Isn't. The Staggering Love of Christ for His People. And listen, if you're not amazed, uh, uh, shocked, and surprised with the staggering love of Jesus, you're worshiping an idol. Don't go anyplace. From Key Life comes two mini books. What do you do for a living? And Life After Retirement. What Do You Do for a Living by Justin Holcomb addresses the problem of defining ourselves by what we do and how we perform in our work instead of by who we know, a gracious, loving God who defines who we are. Life After Retirement by Steve Brown examines how those transitioning from work to retirement often experience a loss of purpose in life and how the quest for personal significance can best be answered by God's radical grace, love, and purpose for our lives sufficient to carry us through this transition. What Do You Do for a Living and Life After Retirement can help guide people struggling with either work or retirement. These two Key Life mini-books are available through keylife.org for a donation of $6. Thanks for joining us. Uh, We're hanging out with pastor and author Eric Raymond. You can keep up with his writing at OrdinaryPastor.com. And if you're on Twitter, it's at Eric Raymond. Eric, before the break, we were talking about uh, uh, the exceptions in, in the family photo. And you use... That's a wonderful um, uh, illustration of Jesus' family photo. And uh, 
and the surprising people that are a part of that picture. And I'd ask you, are there some that we wouldn't be surprised at who are just so good and pure and nice and obedient that, of course, they had enough sin to require the blood of Christ, but most of it was popcorn, and you're not surprised that they are in the photo. Would you comment on that? You were talking about it before the break. Yeah, I, I don't think any, nobody is so good that they don't need Jesus, and there's nobody so bad that Jesus wouldn't take them, right? So there's a big picture framework there. Um, I, I think if you would think about sin, we all sin, and we all sin. The Bible's clear about that, and our lives reflect that. Um, but our sins uh, are relative in one sense, because some people might sin with a larger font, uh, more extreme sins, we might say, um, and their expressions of it might, you know, might lend to you look at it and say that person has had a, a real rough life or done some really bad things. But other people might sin in more "quote unquote" respectable ways, and 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 they might think, "Oh, that's not such a big deal." Um, but the bottom line is, whether your font is exceedingly large or smaller relatively, everybody's got something written on the page. We've all sinned, and we're all sinners. And so there'll be nobody in the family photo of Jesus that hasn't been cleansed from their sin or have confessed their sin before God and to, and seen Christ to be a great Savior who saves them from their sin. That's what Luther said, that yeah. we are all great sinners and we have a great savior. And uh, that's true. Is there a danger for those who are more within the box of self-righteousness? Yeah, I think so. I think I think that's certainly true. You end up you end up looking at your religious accomplishments or comparing yourself to others and being being able to say you're better than this person, so to speak. And yeah, that could lead to self-righteousness. And you end up staring at your own merit so much you eclipse Christ. And, and you know, like if, if, like Paul says in Galatians, if righteousness comes to the law and Christ died needlessly, and you don't ever want to be in a position where you obscure Christ and his glory and his work. Mm, George. Yeah. Mm. Um, Eric, just kind of as an aside, one of the things that I really enjoyed in the book was um, you giving some additional uh, kind of backstory detail on a lot of those um, stories of of the people that uh, Jesus was drawn to. For example, uh, you know, the um, cultural uh uh, aspects of, of why exactly it was such a major statement on Jesus's part to um, associate with like a Samaritan or, um, you know, some of the tax collector or something like that. And, and just a, a, some of that uh, additional backstory was was really fascinating. Um, I, I really uh, appreciate it. And it, it seems like obviously in our uh, culture, we are, um, it's very clear how much people are uh, desirous of being accepted. Uh, you see it on social media every day. And, um, and so the idea of being drawn and the encouragement of that, of Christ. But it also seems like um, as you go through these, um, Jesus not being ashamed of those who opposed him or, over, or were overlooked or something, 
it can it can be kind of an encouragement for us as believers to uh, if you will notice those people who might have been overlooked or who might be feeling the same situation that we might have felt. Mm -hmm. uh, can you comment some on that uh, as a sort of Jesus as a model for reaching out to others? Yeah, I think that's, that's really perceptive. That's good. Um, good insight into just looking at Christ and how he sees people. I think one of the goals that I'm trying to do in the, in the book is to try to, if we can kind of stand behind Jesus and look through his eyes in the way that he interacts with with people, um, particularly in the New Testament, how does Jesus view people? We know how we view people, and oftentimes we do that incorrectly. And so, if we're able to get the the mind of Christ or see through His eyes at people, then maybe we, as Christians, will be able to see one another and the world around us a little bit a little bit more acutely and more Christ like. Uh, so, I think you know the one of the, you referenced those who are overlooked. I mean, like. The story of Bartimaeus on the side of the road in Mark's gospel is just pretty amazing because this guy is, he's being hushed, he's overlooked, and he's blind and, um, you know, unable to, to really get in and garner any attention. And um, it's it's an amazing reality because Jesus is, is marching on his way to his own death upon the cross, has a million things upon his mind. And there he is, and, it, and Mark tells us in that short little statement, and Jesus stops. Um, and so Jesus is always moving so quickly through Mark, and he stops at that time for this man who's calling out to him, asking for mercy and asking for help. And I just think that Jesus notices those cries. Amen. That's so good. That's encouraging for this old cynical preacher, too. More encouragement on the other side of the break. irritated when the electricity went out. No television, no music, no Netflix. And then he discovered that the battery on his smartphone was dead. He decided to make some coffee, but when he went to the kitchen, he realized that without electricity, he couldn't even do that. Then he noticed his wife in the kitchen, and he sat down and talked to her. He said later, you know, she seemed like a very nice lady. I know, I know, technology's good, but sometimes go talk to somebody face-to-face. -face. You might be surprised how nice and real they are. It's messy sometimes, but Jesus would like it. I'm Steve Brown. You think about that. Share what you just heard with a friend. Go to youthinkaboutthat.com. Hey, thanks for joining us. Yes. By the way, it's not too late to claim your tickets to our big event on Monday, October the 17th. We're going to record this show in front of a live audience here in Central Florida. So if you're within spitting distance of Central Florida, we'd love to have you. And if you go to our website, uh, that's keylife.org, you can get all the information that you need for that. 
We're hanging out with Eric Raymond and his book is he, that would be Jesus, is not ashamed. Eric, I just I just had one quick little um, observation and statement that I wanted to tell you um, about the title of the book. And that is that I absolutely love the fact that you chose the word staggering. Um, A number of years ago, uh, there was a popular contemporary um, Christian uh, music thing that we uh, song that we sang in church. um, Oh, the overwhelming, never ending, reckless um, love of God. And I had never really thought a whole lot about the word reckless or like a word like staggering. And a friend of mine who is uh, very, very much loves God with all of his heart, um, just has a real problem with that song because he, he says reckless is a bad word to, you know, attribute anywhere to God. You know, there's nothing about God that's reckless and et cetera. And I began thinking at that point in time about all the words that are a little bit unusual, but are so applicable and staggering is one of them because it, you know, the love of God is reckless and it is staggering. And I just, I mean, there are all kinds of words you could have chosen there, but that is just such an incredible word. Stagger. It is absolutely staggering. Yeah, it really is. And uh, Eric uh, writes in a way that you'll see how very staggering it is. Eric, tell us about some of your favorite sinners. <laughs> some of my favorite sinners? Yeah, well, well you got to confess yours first, and then you can go <laughs> to people like Peter or others. Yeah, I was just going to start with the ones I live with. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and talk to on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, just the Lord is so kind, right? I mean, he's just, when you when you think about his love, uh, for sinners, you think about his holiness as well, and it's just he's he's working that change in us, and he has been so gracious and so kind um, to to keep his people. I, I love the quote by Richard Sibbs that you know if if Jesus didn't love sinners, uh, he wouldn't have a people. It's like this is who we, who we are. Uh, he he knows we're not the stuff of steel. He knows that we're dust, and uh, that's just. Uh, so encouraging, so encouraging to, to think about. Yeah, the chapter um, on the, that Jesus is not ashamed of those who still sin um, is it's just a reality that, you know, working that out, that you, you do see uh, who would be arguably one of the, the, the most prominent men in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter, um, and the way that the Lord deals with him following, following his denials uh, on the night when Christ was betrayed. And um, and how Jesus, you know, fixes that breakfast on the shore, and and Peter comes running in, and they spend that time talking and those those questions, um, you know, not not asking him, are you going to obey me or are you going to do this again, but just do you love me? Really getting to the heart of the issue. I mean, you know, the disciples' love for the Savior, and then Jesus give, showing him that he's not on the um, he, he's he's not off the team. In fact, he's got work to do. He's got some some sheep to feed, some some lambs to tend. He's got some work to do in the shepherd as a shepherd in this flock. Uh, it's just a reminder that this good shepherd loves Peter, and he's not done because he sinned, but he he needs to, to really bask in that love of Christ and what repentance looks like in the life of the church. So, I'm just reminded of that when I think of Peter. I think of Paul telling us that. Uh, he's an example of the patience of the Lord for his people, that he's the chief of sinners. 
uh, and that the that whole interaction with Christ is a reminder of the type of mercy that we should seek. And I even talk a little bit about in the book about church discipline. That so many people think about church discipline as something that's a negative, but I mean it's instituted by the Lord for the purity and the protection and the uh, rescue of us when we run into sin, and how He knows that we're sinners and He loves us. And he wants us to be pursued in love with the admonishment of the words that we turn and repent and find our, our joy in him. So, yeah, I'm so thankful the Lord is so gracious to sinful people, not only prior to conversion, but after conversion, as he keeps us all yeah. the way to the end. You know, and you express it so well, the thrust uh, of the redemptive story of Scripture. It's on every page, in every place, in every verse. Why Why do so many Christians miss it? Yeah, I don't know. I know I know why I miss it uh, sometimes. I mean, I, I, I get gospel amnesia. I forget the gospel. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I run into legalism. I run into self-righteousness. It's just... This, this indwelling sin that remains in me, um, this pronation towards self and mm-hmm. my glory. I had a friend that says, we're all filled with helium. We're always trying to rise to the top. And that's <laughs> us. I mean, we're just constantly in that level. So uh, if, if the gospel is about being humbled and being lifted up in Christ, then if we tend to be arrogant or prideful, self-absorbed then we can forget about what christ has done and so i I just i regret that that i have amnesia too often yeah i love the way you're saying you struggle too boy do i and i think most christians do we have to be so very careful luther said we have to preach the gospel to each other lest we become discouraged Um, i would add lest we become self-righteous and are not offering the gospel to others who need it the way we need it and needed it and will need it tomorrow. You get criticized preaching on this stuff from those who say, look, you're giving people permission to go out and sin. Yeah. I mean, I think you, yeah. I mean, you get called on one side. If you, if you preach the gospel and the gospel of grace, sola fide, um, you know, people might say you're antinomian. And then if you, if you, if you call Christians to live in holiness, then people say you're legalistic. So, I mean, it's, it seems like you kind of take fire on both sides. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to add stuff to the gospel. Important things that Christians should be doing is not part of the gospel call of, of believing in Christ. So we want to make sure we keep, yeah. Keep the gospel and its clarity. What we're, what we're preaching and what we're holding on to is Christ and his benefits, not oh. on me. Eric, the hour is up and it has gone by quickly, as is the reading of your book. You just can't put it down because this is what we need as Christians. The name of the book is He is Not Ashamed. The staggering, and he picked the word right, love of Christ for his people. Eric, God bless you, brother. Thank you so much for being with us during this. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks, hey, sir. guys, uh, we're probably going to come back unless something really bad happens in the <laughs> next two minutes. And we'll tell you who we're going to do it unto next week. You're going to be staggered when you get the information. <laughs> Hi, this is Eric, producer of Steve Brown, etc. If you've been listening very long, you know I'm a struggling believer, and I'd love to share some things that have helped. At Key Life, we believe that the deepest message of the ministry of Jesus and the Bible is the radical grace of God for sinners and sufferers. And we have four mini books that'll help you believe that no matter what you've done or what you're going through, God's not mad at you. Feeling Guilty, Suffering, and Faith and Doubt by Steve Brown will help you apply healing biblical truth to where it hurts the most. And my mini book, The Gift of Addiction, How God Redeems Our Pain, shows that coming to the end of ourselves is actually the beginning of faith. These four mini books are in the Grace for Sinners and Sufferers mini book combo, and it's available at keylife.org for a suggested donation of $12. They're also individually available for a suggested donation of $4. What a good hour of remembering. And when I suggest you get this book, I really meant it. You know, we, we read lots of stuff. And a lot of it is nonsense. And we get a lot of lies from talking heads on television. And we have friends because all of us wear masks who don't speak truth to us, too. And so for Christians, it is maybe as important or even more important that we just fill ourselves to the brim with the reality that Jesus isn't ashamed of us. No matter where you've gone, no matter what you've done or doing, no matter what you smoked or smoking, uh, you hang out with him. He got a bad reputation because of us. You know, in the New Testament, he was accused of hanging out with people that should not be a part of the family photo. Uh, wine bibbers and sinners and prostitutes and heretics. And that's where he was comfortable. And that's where he's still comfortable. So if you're walking it, you're close to entire sanctification. If you could just make yourself floss in the morning before you go about your day, if you're there, uh, Jesus is bored with that. Uh, he likes to hang out with people who struggle, who've been marginalized, who've fallen, and don't think they can get back up. So get this book. He is not ashamed. I know he's not ashamed of you. The deal is to find out and to remember that he's not ashamed of me. Good interview. Kathy, who's going to be on next week? Next week. I know finally, that guy. finally, 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 
Next week is the live. We're recording live. If you're in the area, this coming Tuesday, the 17th, please come at 7 p.m. Monday to I mean, Monday at 7 p.m. Thank you. Monday at 7 p.m. <laughs> and to the um, live live um, Steve Brown, et cetera, program as we release celebrate the release of laughter and lament the scandalous freedom of joy and sorrow by who wrote that book again? Oh, Steve Brown. Oh, I know it was me. I got a letter this morning and it had my name on it. I get reminded of that. This is it. It's a big deal, guys. It's a great book. It's a big deal. And you ought to be there just to bask in the absolute shocking surprise. We're going to interview. Did it again. Yep. We're going to interview Steve. Guys, be with, if you live in uh, Florida, come and join us on Monday night. And uh, if you don't, and if you do, join us next week, same time, same place. Don't do anything we wouldn't. Gives you a wide, wide berth. <laughs>